Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out. This is part two of our conversation with Lucas Jaden and Steve Jones on their book, The Twin Thieves. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. But I know in the book, you again mentioned that great leaders are great listeners. Lucas, I guess, go, can you dig more into that? Um, why is listening such an important aspect for leaders? Yeah, well, we use the quote in there that has been used quite a bit that I think is might be cliche, but incredibly truthful is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And uh, I mean, I firsthandly saw that from Steve. I've seen that from my mother, who is um, a 30-year cross-country coach. The amount of people who are willing to run through a wall for her because she cares as good as anybody is unbelievable. And how do you show people that you care? To me, it's through really genuine listening. Mm. Um, Over and over again, I'll ask people, that invite me back or invite me to work with them for a very long time. You know, uh, when I, I've been working with Dave Roberts from the Dodgers for about a year now. And I asked him like, you know, you could work with a lot of people <laughs> like any, like, why, why do you, why'd you choose me? Why are you choosing me? And he said, it's because you know how to really listen in an era that listening is a lost skill. And I just think that it's interesting for leadership, how do you lead if you don't listen? If you don't listen, you're leading from your made-up illusions about what you think your team or the people you lead needs instead of what they actually need. So I just think there's a lot of reasons and distractions in our current world to not be present with people, to not listen to what they're saying and also what they're not saying. Because really listening, it takes hard work. And I will be the first to say that I am not perfect in it. And my wife will be the second to back me up on that. (laughs) Um, But leadership starts with listening because then it helps you to direct what is the most effective plan going forward. But it starts with getting closer to what is truthful um, from listening. Lucas, do you have any tips for coaches um, on how to be I don't know, authentic or sincere and really get something out of their players. Cause I feel like it's easy as a coach to be like, when you meet up with the player, like, Oh, how's it going? And kind of stay on that surface level. But do you have any um, suggestions on how to like show them that you really actually care? You're not just asking the question. Yeah. Well, the first one is actually care. Mm-hmm. Like, like actually care about your players. That's hard to do at times, like actually care about them more than what you care about the result. Um, I think if as coaches, we just first gut check that of like, do I sincerely care about them? But then after that is um, there's a phrase that I would encourage every coach to learn to master. And it is, it seems like, and then fill in the blank for what you're seeing in that player. So for example, I ran a track practice this morning and one of my athletes just came up that's going to be really important for us down the, in the postseason here. And you could just tell that he looked tired, lethargic. And so instead of saying, hey, good morning, how are you? I went right to it because I understand him. It was, hey, how are you doing today? Uh, it seems like, seems like you're a little bit down. You know, it seems like things are a little slow this morning. And then you just listen. 
But, but the better you can get at labeling the emotion inside of them, it already gives them the feeling that, wow, they're watching me, they're seen. And one of our number one needs as people is to be seen. So it seems like, it looks like, it sounds like, and then you label that. The cool thing about those words, and I learned this from Chris Voss, um, the hostage negotiator, and he wrote a really cool book about all this, is you can be wrong. So this morning, my runner could have said, no, actually, <laughs> coach, I'm great. <laughs> and I would have been like, okay. But um, labeling and getting specific uh, really helps. And then if you get those players that are like, no, no, I'm good, but really you can you can see it in them. That's where being a little bit more consistent, like, yeah, but when it, it seems like this or when you do this, it really seems like, and so I really use those words to go deeper, especially with athletes or younger players that don't maybe have the emotional language to share. Um, so those words have been gold for me. I just like to follow up with a quick, uh, you know, story, I guess, because uh, I just think I come back to it's just about intentionality, right? And as a leader, as a head coach, John, like everybody, you know, you get busy with a lot of stuff, right? And a lot of times I think relationships and listening and checking in with people can sometimes, if we're not intentional about it, take a backseat to budgets and practice plan and a lot of mm -hmm. other things that leaders have to deal with. Uh, so about seven years ago, I was at a leadership conference. We were sitting at a circular table and the question was posed, who's the best leader in your life and why? And there's a lady at her table and it was her turn. She said, Mark Murphy. So Mark Murphy's president of the Green Bay Packers. And everybody kind of perked up a little bit waiting to hear about Mark Murphy. And she told a story about, so she's in marketing, kind of low level. She called herself marketing and she was walking through the facilities and Mark was walking around too. And they ran into each other and started talking. He asked her some questions about her kids and everything else. Well, three weeks later, uh, she's eating lunch in the facility and Mark Murphy comes sits next to her and remembers her kids' names and the activities they're involved in and, and just sat and talked with her for a half hour. And of all the leaders that popped into her mind, it was Mark Murphy, not because he was the president of the Green Bay Packers, but because he was a leader that listened and that was intentional about it. So you fast forward about five years later, so it was two years ago, uh, I spoke at a, same, a similar, a same event as Mark Murphy. So he spoke before me, I got to listen to him. And he talked about how he believes in a leadership strategy called managing by wandering around, or we call it leading by wandering around, and how in his day he scheduled out opportunities for just to walk around and check in with people. And, you know, Lucas calls it rounding, but it's, it has to be intentional. It just doesn't happen by default. So I think that's just another big part of, of listening and building relationship is the intentionality behind it. Yeah, a great example. Um, so we'll stay on the leadership and leadership topic. Uh, in the book, you outline just all the benefits of a player-led team. I'm wondering what you guys see, Steve, if you want to take this one, the benefits of a more player-led approach versus a coach-led approach. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, lot of benefits to it, and it's not easy. You know, I think if you would survey a team or coaches of, who've been around for a while, how many player-led teams they've had, it's hard uh, to develop player-led teams. But I think it's the idea of collective ownership and when there's collective ownership and, and it's not just the coach driving the beliefs and the standards and uh, the expectations, but it's coming from their peers, the people that they compete with, I think there's just another level. And the other thing that we talk about in, in the book of um, not sinking the ship, so don't sink the ship. So if you imagine your culture, or your program as a ship, uh, there's a quote that water 
it's not the water around the ship that sinks it, it's when water gets inside. So one thing that we pose to our, our players and our leaders on our team is, okay, what can't sink the ship? So it's not our competition that are going to sink our ship. It's not the all the other noise that's around our ship. It's when we allow things to get inside. So then we go through an activity where our leaders talk about, okay, here are the things that can't get in our ship. You know, things like entitlement, complacency, blaming and complaining, um, you know, unnecessary drama. I could go on and on, energy vampires, all this other stuff that can't get in a ship. So then what I pose to them is I'll say, okay, now it's your job to make sure that those things don't get in our ship. Because as you guys know, as leaders, it's not usually when the president, the CEO, the head coach, or the coaches are around that those things creep in. It's in the locker room. It's on the weekends. It's through text messages. It's all this other stuff. And if you can develop the leaders that have the courage to be the Buffalo and to address those situations in real time, it's amazing how big of a ship you can build and how strong of a ship you can build when those things are not inside of our ship. So I think when you empower your leaders to take ownership of your ship, so to speak, or your culture, your team, what you're doing is you're equipping them to make sure that they know they have the power to really take the wheel of that ship and go to the destination they want to go to. And do you guys see any issues or I guess potential issues you could run into if you want to take this approach as a coach, maybe you're first trying to implement it where you're trying to get your players, you know, you know, more in a leadership role. Uh, yeah. What could you run into? I think if, if you're not checking in with those players and you're not equipping them and teaching them and um, guiding and mentoring them, I think it could go sideways pretty quick. Mm. Uh, it's not about player led teams or not about the coach just putting his feet up and saying, Oh, it's your team, figure it out. Right. It's about having a systematic approach. So for us, we have leadership council, we have meetings in the off season. And then in, during the season for us, we meet once a week for about 15, 20 minutes. I try to sit on my hands and just listen to our leaders give me input, give me the pulse. And when we have situations, what I try to do is be the guide or the mentor, and then they get to be the hero, so to speak, uh, by hopefully taking the uh, empowering themselves and, and everybody in that group to really take the ownership. So to answer your question, I think it could really go sideways if you're not there and a part of it uh, and being the guide and the mentor and helping them. If you just expect them to take ownership and, and it's all on them and then you blame them when things don't go your, the way that you want it to go, I think that would obviously be pretty poor leadership. Yeah, good point. And just, and just one thing, like adding on to that, I just want to reinforce that player-led teams don't mean the coach doesn't matter. It's a higher level of the coach to be able to orchestrate because what we know is, you know, the science of, uh, I think it's Bloom's taxonomy or Bloom's something that is the highest level of learning is teaching, right? But how many coaches even give their kids the space to teach uh, and then to equip them and help them. So I just think it's a higher level when you're learning the questions as the coach that guide your leaders to be where they are. And I'll just, a very quick example, just make this very real. Uh, a couple of weeks ago with our, our track team that I lead, we've been talking about sleep since we were blue in the face, right? About how important it was. So finally, the challenge right now because of COVID is that tr our track season is going later, almost until July. So it's summer. A lot of kids are out of their season. We're lucky enough to be continuing going into the postseason. And I, I just asked them finally, like we have been talking about sleep, but I asked them, let's line up by what time you went to bed at night. Like what time did you go to sleep last night? And they lined up and the earliest was 11 p.m., the latest was about 1.45. We were practicing at 8 a.m. 
All right. So it's a bit of like a wow. Um, But at that moment, they recognized what the challenge was. But from there, it was I gave them five minutes to have a conversation about what did they want to commit to? Because they know very well that it's nine and a quarter hours of sleep to fully recover for them or around about that ballpark. They know all of it. It It's just a matter of did they want to hold each other to it? that it was their standard instead of my standard. And so they got three minutes uh, to discuss what did they want to commit to. And that was uh, a 1030 bedtime from there on going forward. And then after that, we started all the practices with them checking in with each other. What did you sleep last night? And it was one small way where our leaders were taking the step to be player led. No longer was it me begging or bitching for lack of better words at them to sleep more. It was, this is what we are about. And I, it's just, it's a minute kind of a microcosm, but that's, uh, in my opinion, the shift towards a player-like group. Yeah, it's helpful example. Uh, you guys have a character in the story who's more of a lead by example kind of athlete. Um, I know this is seen a lot as a positive and even an ideal, but there might be more to it. Lucas, uh, what is the next step in leadership for this sort of person? Um, beyond lead by example, you're saying, Billy, or what, what exactly? Yeah. You mean? yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of times we look at that as the ideal of like the quiet leader who only leads by example. But is there is yeah. there more to it than that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, I want to turn this one over to Steve. I might have set you up for this one uh, poorly. But Steve, we just talked about the leadership blueprint that you kind of designed inside of your class because I have learned from Steve on this one in particular. So go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Similar to what we talked about with culture. I think a lot of times it's overused and underdefined. I think leadership is the same way. And I I don't know about you guys, but I'm a visual person. I think visuals help. So if you imagine a pyramid and there's three levels to that pyramid, the base level of that pyramid is leading by example. Um, So as you're talking about Billy, like, you know, that quiet leader that works really hard, you know, is on time, is respectful. Um, to me, that's leadership, but to me, that's the lowest level of leadership. Uh, to me, it's, it's good, but it's not great leadership. So again, if, if I was talking to John as a coach and he was pointing out a leader and said, you know, she, oh, she's great, she's a great leader because she works really hard, she's on time, she's respectful, she listens. To me, is that great leadership or is that just meeting your standards? To me, that's meeting the standards in an organization or a program. And I think a lot of times, you know, those people are heavily applauded and, you know, they, they get viewed as these great leaders. And again, I think it's good. And it's in our pyramid because foundationally you need to do those things because if you do not do those things and you expect others or you demand others to do those things, then you're viewed as a hypocrite and no one follows or respects a hypocrite. So if John's really, really lazy and then he goes to Billy and says, Hey, you got to start working harder. Billy's going to look at him and say, what are you talking about? Right. I'm not following you. Now, if John is the hardest worker and now he approaches Billy about his work ethic, that conversation is a whole lot more meaningful. So that's the base level, lead yourself. The next level to me and to us is the ability to lead others. So that is really kind of, to me, where that, that's a hard jump for young leaders or leaders in general to make. Uh, because now what you're confronting is the fear of judgment, the fear of failure, the twin thieves, and and that's kind of a big roadblock because now all of a sudden I got to worry about myself. And now you're telling me now I have to try to inspire, motivate, encourage, hold other people accountable while leading myself. That's a whole different level. 
Um, so to me, that's leading others. And, and you have to be, you have to be vocal. You have to be a communicator. It's hard to lead others without communicating. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be up there giving a speech every practice. Um, but you do need to be able to put your arm around someone and, and ask and say, you know, so it seems like, or, Hey, we need, we, you're better than this or whatever the conversation looks like, or holding a group accountable or pushing them or encouraging them. It comes with vocal leadership. So to me and to, to Lucas and to us, it's that that's the next level. And then the highest level, the third level of that pyramid at the top is being a servant, being a servant leader. And the common thread amongst all great leaders is that they're servants. You look at Gandhi, Mother Teresa, you look at our military. When I ask a lot of people who the best leader in their life is, they talk about their parents. Well, parents are servant leaders. Coaches are servant leaders. That doesn't mean we're subservient. Subservient means you're a doormat, you get walked all over. A servant leader means that you come from a place in your heart, a hot, heart posture, an intent that you care so much about the people that you're leading that you're willing to do what's best for them, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you don't get anything in return. So that is our leadership blueprint. And that's why you know, Lucas and I feel like leading yourself, leading by example is good leadership. But if you really want to become elite, uh, there's definitely some different levels to that. Awesome. That's really yeah, and, cool. You know, and, and John, when you look at your, your players that you work with, what holds them back generally? What have you heard maybe from their own words of like a player that's working really hard that you want to speak up more, to push their teammates more. What have you heard or seen be the barrier for that jump from level one of the pyramid to level two? Uh, yeah, I think they worry about like maybe ruffling feathers or being the way they'd be perceived. Like, uh, you know, as a, yeah, I guess the perception they'd worry about. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, right there, that's real. I know what that feels like to this day. <laughs> like, I know what that feels like. But when you can get them to articulate that, then comes the training of fear resilience. What are we working on? How do we handle those moments? And I just really love the idea that if your desire for mission accomplishment is great enough, then you're willing to do what it takes to get us better. But that jump from level one, leading yourself to leading others, that takes some serious support. It takes practice where your leaders get to see, wow, I can be hard on my teammates at times, but they still know that I love them. They still know that I care for them. But that is a process. And I always just like to ask coaches, because this is one of the number one things that we hear all the time is I just, my players just don't hold themselves accountable. They don't hold each other accountable. And the first challenge is, well, one, how good are you at having challenging conversations with peers? Because it's easy to talk to an athlete or somebody younger and push them, but it's with peers. And the second thing is, what are we doing to encourage, to help, to support them in having those conversations that are needed to go from level one to level two? Hmm. So you guys, we talk a lot about the importance of leaders and the role they play on their teams. Do you guys um, recommend, I guess, Lucas, can you go first? Do you guys select um, who's going to be the leader from your team? Or do you hope that they kind of just emerge naturally and give them the leadership role after they've earned it? So that's a really good question. And it's actually a, a conversation I have probably on a weekly basis with coaches is the idea of captains. What goes on with captains? And it's something that Steve and I had to have 
a lot of conversations about of how we wanted it to play out in the book, because I think what we've both seen is the danger of the C that you get on your Jersey doesn't just make you a leader. The C that you get on your Jersey doesn't make people want to follow you. Um, what that it requires is what we've talked about, really good listening, willing to go for others more than for yourself, willing to go longer and harder and be the model. So what I've learned and what I believe and have seen is my greatest experiences with smaller teams, basketball teams, um, volleyball teams, and I am a big proponent of allowing those leaders to emerge and then seeing where they play out before you would do any sort of selecting. However, I think it kind of happens simultaneously, like leaders are going to emerge. And then when I see or got to work with Steve and learn from his uh, kind of specific strategies for a larger group, and I'll turn it over to Steve here, I just think it is a little bit different with a team of, you know, over a hundred players on it. Like crazy. that's so a crazy. whole different animal. So Steve, just give your perspective on, on the captain side and how you would go about answering that too. Yeah. So in our process, so in a typical year, we have sophomores through seniors, we all practice together. Um, and we had about 120 young men uh, on that roster. So what we've done in our process is we have, we have a leadership council, we call it. So at the conclusion of one season, heading into the, the upcoming season, if student athletes, if our players are interested in learning more about leadership, developing themselves as a leader, um, they apply, so to speak, into becoming part of leadership, uh, our leadership council. And there's certain expectations that they must meet. So we, you know, during the school year in, in the spring, we usually meet once a week for six to eight weeks in the morning before school and they can't miss a meeting unless it's obviously prearranged. Uh, we're going to read a book. Um, we're going to do community service together. So there are definitely expectations that they need to meet and they know that ahead of time. And then they do some type of application. So they either write a cover letter. I've had them do videos and, and tell us why they want to be leaders in our team. And I've done it a lot of different ways. I've kept everybody and we've had 40 some kids on our leadership. We've dwindled it down to 16 uh, but one thing we always make sure we do is we have unit leaders. So there's generally about nine different positions on a football team. And so we can make sure that we have a leader in each position. Um, and that can be incoming juniors, incoming seniors. Um, and so we go through that process. And then uh, once they've gone through that process, entering the football season, you know, in football, we do have to have captains because we have to do a coin toss. Uh, so uh, we've done a lot of different things that way too. We've had, eight captains, so to speak, that have to be one expectation is that they're a part of the leadership council. And then they get selected by their teammates um, based on how well they live out our values, um, things like that. Um, and then we've had up to eight captains this year. We only had one uh, and it's kind of just unique each year, but we, that's kind of our system. They need to make sure that they're a part of the learning and, and the experience of being part of the leadership council and then they get chosen by their teammates um, based on how well they live out the, the values in our program. And sometimes our captains are not our best players, but they are definitely most times our best leaders. Yeah, it's cool to hear different examples. And I think for coaches, it's you look at your situation and the amount of players you have and then people can consider. Because, yeah, I feel like this is a I hear different perspectives of like, yeah, you've got to have three leaders or no, we don't elect leaders. I feel like it's. Um, yeah, I've heard just all sorts of different takes on it. So it's cool to hear the, the different perspectives. 
I think so, the non-negotiable, whether you're selecting captains or naming them, whatever, I do think that as leaders of organizations, whether it's sports teams, businesses, we need to make sure that leadership development is at the forefront because there's so many people that will complain about the lack of leadership and then they just kind of turn their back and they just expect it's going to happen if they complain enough. So I think no matter what the process is, you have to make sure that the leadership development is at the forefront of what you're doing. And then, you know, leaders are going to be leaders. And we always tell our kids too, just because maybe you were not selected as a captain doesn't mean you stop leading. And we've never had an issue. They're part of our leadership council. They are a leader. Right. So we've been talking almost an hour and we haven't even addressed what the twin thieves are. I think you guys have mentioned it, but uh, maybe Lucas, you could tell us what, what are the twin thieves? Uh, yeah, I will very briefly, the twin thieves are the fear of failure and the fear of judgment. Um, those two factors and where they emerged for me very clearly were whenever I would go to work with a program and John, your group has done this a few times is I would ask them anonymously, what is the toughest mental challenge that holds you back from being the best version of yourself? Over and over and over again, um, those two things emerged from the data. And so I was kind of seeing them. And then uh, I'll never forget, I went to work with some of uh, Steve's leaders. He invited me in one day and we're sitting around in a circle. And I asked them that question, you know, what is the toughest, you know, what is the most likely barrier to hold this team back? And you know how powerful common language is. Well, what I saw in that survey was unlike anything before. They kept saying the twin thieves, <laughs> the twin thieves. And then I saw fear of failure, fear of judgment. Now, this is a group of 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old young men that are saying fear of failure, fear of judgment. And I remember thinking, what in the heck? <laughs> like, this is, this is interesting. And of course, it was like that because Steve had been already teaching fear of failure and fear of judgment as their toughest challenge and named them the twin thieves. So it's actually the twin thieves is something that Steve made up and created as part of his language. And so Steve, I'll let you kind of elaborate more on exactly what the twin thieves mean beyond that. Yeah, so besides coaching football, I've also been teaching leadership at our high school. We have now three separate leadership courses uh, at our high school that's an elective. Um, so I get to work with all different types of, of kids and backgrounds. And, um, you know, again, when, when we have these discussions or do these activities, those two things that just continue to emerge over the last 12, 13 years of teaching that class of, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm scared of leadership. I'm scared of leading because, you know, what happens if nobody follows me? What happens if I say the wrong thing? So basically failure, what are people going to think about me? Judgment. And we call them twins because oftentimes they kind of get mixed up, right? So when you ask somebody what's, you know, what's your biggest fear? And they say failure. And you ask a few more deeper questions. It's not even the failure itself. It's the judgment that comes afterwards. So those two things get kind of mixed up, the fear of failure, the fear of judgment oftentimes. So we call them twins because they kind of look the same. And we call them thieves because they can rob us. Mm. They can rob us of a lot of things in our life. They can rob us of opportunities. They can rob us of our growth. They can rob us of, I could go on and on. But if you think about the fear of failure and the fear of judgment and what maybe they have potentially robbed you of taking chances in your life, um, you know, I think we can all admit that those two things have definitely been thieves in our lives. And um, so we, we just talk about those two things and then what they do for individuals and what they do for collective groups. So 
Uh, John, not to get too long-winded, but I'll just like to throw it back on you. You know, mm-hmm. a team that you've been a part of or you've played on or you've been, a, been able to observe have functioned out of fear. The Twin Thieves have been really driving that culture, that team. You know, what does that kind of feel like? What does that kind of look like or sound like within that team? Yeah, I think high stress. Um, I think uh, uh, really a lot of concern about what others think. And um, yeah, I guess you don't see people taking chances. You see people playing it safe a lot. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things that jump out and I could picture visuals of it for sure. And I could feel in my own playing career, I could picture when I was that way. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, people are scared to go all in, you know, uh, there's, there's oftentimes jealousy and infighting, uh, people are scared to speak up and share their opinions. Um, so what we, what we talk about through this book is, you know, how do you rise above them? Because let's be honest, the fear of failure and the fear of judgment are probably never going away in our lives. Even the most successful people in the world mm-hmm. have those looming. The question is, is where do you put them? Right? So if you're on your journey, people, you know, allow them to sit in the front seat and take the wheel. Uh, some put them on the passenger side, some throw them in the back of the trunk and close it and lock it. They're still in the car, but uh, they just, do you decide kind of where you want to put them in your life? And mm-hmm. we feel like the greatest teams and the greatest leaders function from a place of, of care and love and empathy with, with high standards and not functioning out of constant fear. Yeah, that's really cool. It's also really cool. You teach a leadership class. I'm thinking of my algebra classes that I took. If I could have been a leadership class, oh my gosh, <laughs> how much I would have gained in high school. That's so cool. I want to sit in on that. Um, so I thought this was a, you know, kind of learning about the twin thieves. I thought this was a really good quote and a healthy antidote to it. Uh, and I heard actually one of, uh, Lucas shared a video from one of your players who said this quote, and it really stood out, Steve. Uh, he said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Uh, could, yeah, Steve, could you kind of, take through how you get a team to this point and um, why that, that perspective matters. Yeah. You know, I, a long time ago uh, in our program, we started, I started using the word love and, you know, since then it's kind of been a, a pillar or foundation. And a lot of people that think that, you know, it's about hating your opponent. It's about hating the competition. It's about all this other stuff, but really what we found is, is love inspires tenacity. And, and when you care so much about the people that you are um, competing with and, and that you're working with, um, you know, you'll run through a brick wall for them. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the word love, and if you're not comfortable with the word love, you can replace it with another four letter word, care, whatever it is, they, they think it's soft and warm and fuzzy, but I think, you know, it is one of the most powerful, most tenacious words out there. So Billy, uh, looks like you got some stuffed animals in the background. Do, do you, do you have children or are those yours? Those are all mine. No, I have fire five-year-old. That's what, he, that's what he claims. Five-year-old. So, <laughs> so Billy, you know, I'll just, I'll throw it at you real quick. Um, you know, if someone in the middle of the night broke into your house and tried to harm or take your five-year-old, you know, what would happen to that individual? in your home. Uh, he would be hurt really bad. <laughs> it wouldn't be good. Right. And it's, it's not because you hate that person. I mean, Billy, you don't even know that person, but it's because you love your child that much, you know, and when you can build that within a team and a culture, that type of bond, it's amazing how hard they'll fight for each other and not always with each other or against the competition, but they end up fighting for each other. Good example. 
So I want to pull another one from the book. Uh, it's a good visual. Um, people got to buy the book to see it, but I'm going to put it on our Zoom screen on page 36. Uh, it's a great visual of the pyramid of traditional and transformational, culture, transformational cultures. Uh, can Steve, can you take us through the differences between those two? Yeah, so I'll just, you know, I think you can, the listeners can use it however they want, but I'll just speak from a, from a full, uh, football perspective. Kind of old school leadership and culture was kind of built on the hierarchy system, right? The coaches were on top. Again, if you look mm -hmm. at that, the coaches were on top. And then you got the seniors, you got the juniors, and then the, the lonely freshmen and sophomores are at the bottom, right? And it's, you know, freshmen, you pick up the field. Freshmen, you clean the locker room. Freshmen, you carry my pads. It's kind of that old school and what we've, we've done in our culture is we've kind of flipped that pyramid on its head and we flipped the paradigm and we train our leaders in our, in our culture, whether it's the coaches, the seniors, the juniors, that our job is to serve. And we're, we're supposed to serve the, the freshmen and the sophomores or the people that are above us, so to speak, on that, on that pyramid. Um, and so that's not an easy transition to make because there's a lot of people that are seniors or have seniority and they think well I paid my dues it's time to get mine and I used to do that but when you start looking at who's been the best leaders in our life it's the people that serve us and when we started training our, our upperclassmen they started to understand that if they want to leave a legacy or a true impact on the people that they're leading or in our in our program they need to start looking at it from a servant leadership perspective so now we have seniors that will serve the freshmen and, and they'll be the ones picking up the field and they'll, they'll, they'll model the behaviors that we want and they'll put their arm around a freshman and say, you know what, this is really hard. I've been there before, but you'll get through it. Let me know if you need anything. Our freshmen or our seniors are, are the ones giving freshman rides home from school. Our seniors are the ones that are calling a freshman on a Saturday and saying, Hey, I'm going to come pick you up. Let's go grab breakfast. Let's talk. And those are, you know, true life examples. And the cool part about getting that culture going is that it spins and it, and, and it cycles the good way. Because when you have other, other cycles and it spins the other way, uh, it can be really detrimental, not only to the culture, but the individuals within the culture. And just one quick thing to add to that, that Steve talks about is seniors picking people up. That doesn't work though, unless your coaches model it. And that's what I'll say, you know, watching Steve, he's a leader of servant leaders. Like, if there's someone that's going to do the dirty hard work, reach out to somebody and hurting, that's Steve. And when you model that as a coach, I think that's when you even give yourself a chance that your seniors are going to be willing to pick up garbage when you set the standard, when your coaches set the standard. Um, but to me, it's just totally a fairy tale to believe that coaches don't have to do that dirty hard work and then want your seniors to do it. So when you look at, you know, the program Steve leads, they're made up of servant leaders uh, as coaches. And uh, I think that is just a, a massive start to getting that spiral going in the right direction. Cool. And can we hear one more? Uh, can you share with us the story of the uh, cocoon cutters? Steve, if you want to take that one. Yeah, love the story. And um, I, I share it at, at every parent meeting now. <laughs> It goes like this. They, uh, there's an old man and he's sitting uh, in his garden. He's retired. It's a beautiful spring day and he's having his cup of coffee and he looks down on the ground and there's this small thing, small object moving. And as he looks closer, he realizes it's a cocoon. And there's a butterfly inside the cocoon trying to escape. So the kind man goes into his home and grabs these tiny scissors and he goes back out and gets down on one knee and he slowly and gently cuts the cocoon. 
freeing the butterfly without harming it. So the old man sits back down and has his cup of coffee and he feels really proud. But as time goes on, the butterfly unfortunately dies. It doesn't survive. Obviously what the butterfly needed was the struggle. Part of the process is strengthening its wings by having to struggle to get out of that cocoon. And since the old man became the cocoon cutter and freed that butterfly and made it easy for that butterfly, the butterfly's wings were not strong enough to fly. So therefore it couldn't survive. And a lot of times I think as leaders, as parents, it's not always comfortable watching the people that you're leading or parenting struggle. So we want to be cocoon cutters, right? We want to kind of make the path really easy for them so they don't have to struggle. But in the long run, what we're really doing is becoming detrimental. So anytime there's growth, there's struggle. And we're meant to go through that struggle in order to grow and to become the best versions of ourselves. So as I said, I always started start off that story um, in our program and our parent meeting and then encourage them not to be cocoon cutters. And it's kind of fun because now our players, when their parents want to jump in and uh, try to help out, they'll say, hey, mom, stop being a cocoon cutter, um, you know, because they, they start to recognize, too, that that struggle is important. That's a cool story. I'm going to have to share that with my wife. <laughs> um, do you see, do you see that also applying to skill training as well? That, that analogy of, uh, making it easy on the players. I, I do, you know, because I think again, whenever there's growth or struggle and, um, you know, example that we use in, in the book is if you pick up, you know, John goes to the weight room, right. And he wants to grow his big biceps for the summer and he goes and picks up, you know, five pound dumbbells. He can sit there and do five pound dumbbells all day and he's going to look really cool. He's not going to break a sweat. He's not going to make all those weird faces you do when you struggle, but his biceps are never going to grow. He's got to go pick up those 45 pound dumbbells or whatever. Right. And then, then he's going to struggle. And then, you know, he may fail. He, he's supposed to get eight. He only gets six, but his biceps will grow that way. So I think we need to make sure we're putting our, our, our kids or our people that we're leading in situations where, you know, they need to struggle and they need to work their way through it. Because again, if we expect them to be those big, beautiful butterflies one day, uh, we need to set them up where they need to be in that growth area or that growth zone where there is struggle. And just one thing on the, the struggle piece, I was talking to a guy from um, uh, Major League Baseball in spring training this last year, and he was going through the development process. They're trying to tweak his swing, you know, and when you get to that level, people are turning to tweak your swing. That gets a little chaotic, but he was taking hundreds of swings a day. And so he was putting in rep after rep. And I'll remember asking him like, so what's the toughest part of all of this? And he's like, honestly, I could swing my bat all day. I love hitting a baseball. Like I love the physical aspect of it. The toughest challenge of this though is, is this going to work out for me? Am I moving along at a pace that's going to be good enough to get me on the major league roster? Is, am I looking ridiculous compared to everybody else? So it all circled back to like the toughest part of that struggle in skill development, not always, but oftentimes is nothing to do with the physical end, but it's with that own game that we're playing mentally of, I should be further along than where I am. How come other people have gotten it faster than I have? And so um, when it comes to what that struggle looks like over and over, I've just heard it, that it comes back to the twin thieves, fear of failure and fear of judgment. Really good. Uh, 
you know, I, I got the book almost 24 hours ago. So I've, I've, I've read about half of it. So we barely even touched on all. And I, and I, you know, I just picked a couple spots to really get into. So there's so many more lessons and stories that people are going to pull from and take. And, and, and so many of them I'd read as like, Oh, I can use that tomorrow. Like I can use that for sure with my players tomorrow. So you guys have written a really, really good book, a really helpful, um, practical book. So I hope people go get it. Is there, is there a place, uh, is Amazon the best spot or where's the best spot to get it? Yeah. So right now for single copies, Amazon is the best spot. And then if people want bulk orders, they can just uh, email us or reach out to us on social media and we'll get them taken care of. Awesome. Well, this was fun. Lucas, we're going to keep looking for ways to keep getting you back on the podcast, keep writing books. And yeah. Steve, Steve, I'm glad we uh, got to meet and I can now I uh, really understand what Lucas has been, talk, been talking about. Uh, your clarity about um, you know who you are and what you believe in really came through and I'm excited to continue to learn from you too. So thank you both. I, I appreciate you having us on and um, you know I, I listen to your podcast and you guys do a great job. Not just when Lucas is on, I listen to it. <laughs> Those but, are the best uh, ones. You guys, you guys do a great job, and um, Lucas has always spoke very highly of you guys. So it's um, it's a it's a pleasure to be on. And I'm grateful for the opportunity.